Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Hey Fast Talk listeners, this is Coach Steve Neal. You may have heard me on the podcast in the past and now I'm here as an official part of the team. I'm really excited to be here at Fast Talk Labs to be able to bring my decades of coaching knowledge to you. You'll see me on the forum adding my advice to your specific training and questions. I have helped over 100 athletes through the inside test. And now when you take your inside test with us, you'll be tapping into my wealth of knowledge and experience about this test and how to best interpret the results. Training optimally requires knowledge of your own body as well as the expert analysis of coaches that know these numbers and how they play out for real athletes on the road. Sign up for your inside test now at fasthoglabs.com. We're sitting down today with Melanie McQuaid. Melanie, thanks for joining us on Fast Talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, you guys. And Melanie is a three-time Xterra World Champion. Uh, she's got some multi-sport world championships in there as well. She's still a pro. She's patiently waiting to race again. And she's perfecting her coaching skills with Melrad Coaching. Uh, so you bring a wealth of information, wealth of, wealth of experience to the program today, not only as a triathlete. I, I think that it's worth emphasizing you've raced kind of every kind of bike and done a lot of different types of racing. So your your experience is vast. Staying motivated and goal oriented and training hard is absolutely the um, the fountain of youth. So I, I think it's in everyone's best interest to do their best to keep at it as long as you can. Absolutely. Let's jump right into the questions, shall we? Let's do it. This first one comes from Matthew Eastwood, and he writes, after years of road racing, where I would struggle with prolonged periods of fatigue in between periods of good form, I now compete in cyclocross and sprint triathlon events as a master's racer. I'm 43 years old with a more relaxed attitude to competition and training and just enjoy exercise and riding my bike in general. My main focus is enjoying myself and feeling like I have given my all. My actual result is secondary to this. My quote-unquote training is based around how I feel on any given day. If I'm tired, I exercise easy or not at all. If I feel good, I train hard. My definition of hard is dependent on time availability and weather. If I have all day on a sunny day and I feel like it, I might do three to five hours of hard riding in the hills. If it's a rainy evening, I might do some sweet spot or other intervals on the rollers or I do a 5K running race. My question is, how good a guide is feel, i.e. achy muscles, enthusiasm, mood, tiredness, and fatigue, mild or intense, in terms of avoiding overtraining, burnout, and illness? Melanie, we'll turn to you first. What do you think? I think it's really interesting that he's chosen to go to shorter and faster races, which I, I think is a, a good choice, especially when you want to make it more fun and and head to head type racing. So I I see I see that for sure for athletes that feel like they're time crunched that they don't have to to suffer for for as long if they feel like they haven't been able to get the hours in. Uh, and I think when I when I look at his overall philosophy, I, I agree that uh, sometimes when you don't feel like doing something, that's just a really like strong indication that you're just reading your body correctly. Like most people are are very motivated and feel like training. So when you don't feel like doing it or you don't feel like going hard, you're probably right. It's probably not the right day to do that. If I 
were coaching him, I would say on the days that he has three to five hours to ride hard to, to ride the five hours easy and just enjoy the day. And then, and then save the short rainy days to just smash himself with really, really short intervals uh, and work on uh, his, his maximum power and, and maximum intensity because probably like all he needs to do is just enough stuff to um, maintain his mitochondrial density for, for the races that he's doing. He doesn't really need to do stuff like sweet spot, particularly for older athletes. I don't think sweet spot is really a beneficial zone for anybody over 40. I think that he could probably just ride even easier and enjoy it even more. Uh, and then on days where he has very little time, um, he can do things like, you know, five by a minute as hard as he can with five minutes rest. And probably that combination would, would make him faster. Uh, and, and that's what I would say for this overall, um, program is, is on the days where he feels good to really go as hard as possible in a really short period of time to maintain his explosiveness, uh, which is the toughest thing for athletes over 40 and then not to need to do anything on his long rides, but go and enjoy a long ride. Well, so the thing that immediately came to mind for me when you, you read his question, and I heard about this a long time ago, so I don't know if this is actually truth or urban legend, but the story goes back in the 80s, the German cycling team or the, the, the national cycling team lived in a house where they had physiologists downstairs and every morning they'd get up, come down, the physiologist would test them, get a sense of where they were at, where their recovery was at, and then they would design their training each day based on how they tested. And the claim was that's what made them such a dominant force in cycling was that they were adjusting day by day by day. So I do think there is something to what he's talking about in terms of the use how you feel as a guide. And if you're really not feeling it on a day, adjust the plan accordingly and not always try to force through the intervals. The flip side of that is to to keep in mind that training is hard. And if you want to get strong, fatigue and aches and pains are, are kind of part of the game. So if every time you're feeling fatigued, every time you're feeling pain, you say, well, I'm not going to go hard today. I'm just going to do that easy ride. You're never really going to get fit. So it's finding that balance of knowing when to say, okay, this is, this is the wrong type of fatigue. I'm really dragging my feet. I need to back down versus, yeah, that's just part of training. He doesn't mention it here, unfortunately. Uh, he doesn't give a total number of hours he's training in an average week. Um, is there a rule of thumb? So, so I guess I'm leading to the question of can someone, if they're, if they're training solely on feel, uh, without using any data for, for guidance, can, are you more likely to overtrain or not? Um, and I guess I'm asking about his, his weekly load or, or volume, because I'm wondering if you could ever get quote unquote overtrained if you're only doing eight hours a week. So that's maybe a two-part question. I've listened to a lot of what Dr. Shona Halston has to say, and she did a study with the AIS. So like, like high level elite athletes training in that center. And she said the incidence of overtraining was very low. Like the chances of you becoming, getting like actual overtraining syndrome is very, very low. You can become under recovered. So you just do more than your body can adapt to in a short period of time. But generally, if you just rest, that resolves itself. 
Um, and you can, you can have like prolonged nervous system. Like it's almost like being in a depressive fog when, when you've really like depressed your, uh, nervous system. Um, so it can feel pretty bad if you've overdone it, but you're probably not in a state of overtraining syndrome. What I think is more common than overtraining in masters athletes is overdoing the middle and just becoming slow and and what happens when you and and so what you can do is you can train a bunch of exactly what he says here like sweet spot intervals where you're doing the maximum amount of intensity that you can combine with volume and that zone three type effort uh, is appropriate maybe for younger athletes that need to stretch their ability to suffer a little bit. They have higher ability to recover from those kind of efforts so they can just dig bigger holes. I think it's also kind of more important for road athletes that do really long races where they're going to spend quite a period of time if the peloton's really rolling in that zone. Um, and it's appropriate for Ironman athletes because generally that's kind of Ironman pace. But in training for a, like a master's athlete, that kind of stuff really makes your nervous system tired. It erodes your ability to do something quite a bit harder, you know, like something that's more like zone five, like explosive. And since older athletes are, you know, experiencing sarcopenia, they're losing muscle fibers. They um, are also losing type two interchangeable fibers that allow them to be explosive or, or at least like opt in for some explosiveness. That kind of training makes you feel tired when really you're just not properly tuned. So my guess is that like a, like a 43 year old athlete who's just kind of racing for fun, it's unlikely he's gonna overtrain, but it's very likely that he's gonna train himself slower. You know, he's going to do a lot of stuff and then just get quite slow. If we wanted to look at this from, uh, you know, from his, his comments on doing sprint triathlon and racing five Ks, that kind of training, when you, when you just kind of do that middle pace in running is particularly detrimental because running economy is, is based on either mileage, um, or speed work, like, and, and so without like usually it's a combination of those two, but at least an appreciable amount of either, your running economy is really poor. Uh, and so that makes your running get quite a bit slower. So Shona would say, it's probably your training. You're not overtrained. What came to mind for me is, uh, I remember one of my first mentors telling me, if all you ever do is ride at 19 miles an hour, you get really good at going 19 miles an hour, which feels fast on a training ride. But if you're in a race, that's certainly not going to win anything. And that's kind of what you're doing with that, that sweet spot. Um, if that's all the work that you're doing, you're, you're just kind of sitting yourself in that one, that one pace. And it, it makes you slow. I don't have it in front of me, but I actually read a really good study on specificity that looked at... Uh, I think it was 5K runners. It was around that sort of distance to see how they trained and showed that they did almost no training at that pace. They either went much longer at slower pace or they did shorter work at much faster, but did almost no training at the actual uh, their actual 5K pace. No matter what the distance, you always get somewhat specific as you get closer to it. And, and that's why 
it, it's always awkward in triathlon to talk about zone three being a bad zone because zone three for a lot of disciplines of triathlon is race pace. So then it gets really confusing, right? Because you're telling people to go race pace, which is zone three at certain times of the year. Um, so like there's times when potentially the sweet spot or his zone three well, not really for not for the races he's doing but if he were doing longer races would be appropriate it's just you don't want to be doing that specific stuff all the time because just as like you said trevor you just get slow you get because because your body just won't adapt to that same stimulus all the time we have another question here that will perhaps lead to even more discussion around the uh, idea of overtraining and some of these concepts. So let's, let's jump to that one. It has a bit of a background uh, that I'll have to read through, but because of that background, you can, uh, I think it reveals a bit about the um, athlete's thought process and hopefully will help us highlight some of the, maybe the mistakes she's made or the concepts that we want to speak about. So let me get into it. it. It comes from Sophie. She's a 27-year-old age group triathlete dealing with, as she puts it, quote, some form of non-functional overreaching. So here's what she writes. I have a soccer background playing professionally until 24 when I started my triathlon career. She puts career in quotes. Uh, since then, I've had a couple small successes, winning overall women age group categories and coming third in the 25 to 29 age group at the 70.3 World, Championship, World Championships in 2018. My first three years in triathlon starting in 2016, I trained under a coach who basically had me start from scratch and build up volume relatively quickly. I managed it quite well. However, it was certainly not 80-20, more like 100% in zone three. Considering that I lost my period, was probably in serious energy deficit and also did a lot of com competitions. I'm surprised I had such a stunning 2018. After that, I was extremely motivated to continue improving and closing the gap to the pros even further. I put in huge winter training and ended up peaking around February 2019. By then, I was probably still in a functional overreaching state. However, things went downhill from there. I had a crash with an open and infected wound. I rested two weeks, after which my coach sent me straight into four weeks of 20-plus hours a week, followed by four weeks of competition. I performed reasonably well, but I was completely exhausted by the start of July when I should have started my prep for my target race, her A race. I decided to pull the plug and switch coaches, as this current coach didn't understand I needed some rest. I found another coach who agreed to take me for my A race prep. However, he could also not magically unmake my previous months, so I ended up having a poor race. I took a break and switched coaches yet again to a regional coach here, someone who knows me well. I regained my period, I slowed down through periodization, and everything became better. We then picked up the intensity again, and when COVID-19 hit, the idea was to work on my weaknesses, or weakness, the run. The weird thing was that despite my overall recovery, the run performance kind of lacked behind and continued to do so. Maybe it became psychological at some point. This summer, I think I was doing too much intensity again. I tried the Ronestat eight-week block. I could improve my 20-minute power on the bike to 257 watts as compared to 245 before. However, that after that, I didn't recover anymore. Now I'm scared. I end up being really overtrained. My performance went down, my resting heart rate was higher than normal, and sometimes I have this feeling of burning legs. However, 
My mood is fine. I'm sleeping eight hours a night. I have a regular period. My energy levels are fine. And very important to me, my motivation to train is high. So I don't really know. I decided to cut back my intensity to no more than one hardish bike and one hardish run a week, while all other sessions are at 60 to 65% of heart rate max, except swimming, which I do with maybe a little more intensity. My total hours per week are about 18 at the moment. I already feel better after two and a half weeks like this, but I'm scared I will do something wrong, which could leave me in a really bad state. I also don't know whether it is better to be self-coached until this is getting really better. So finally to my questions. Do you think I eventually made the right call adapting my training like this? How would you explain that I could improve significantly in two disciplines, swimming and biking, whereas the run lags behind? Could it be a leftover from 2019 where I dug too deep? And finally, what would your step-by-step procedure be for me who maybe was or is overtrained? Mel, there's a ton to unpack here. Um, I know you've you've read this uh, question and this background in preparation for the show. What are your initial thoughts here on uh, Sophie's situation? Here we have someone who who played professional soccer. If you if you're playing soccer professionally, you are an outstanding athlete. Full stop. Like you're an elite athlete for her to come into triathlon. It's a, it's like, if she can swim in, in my estimation, she can be a pro for her to come top three in the, in her age group at worlds for me is, is an, of course she would. (laughs) So that just tells me she hasn't said too much about what her strengths and weaknesses are. Um, But she's uh, obviously can swim. She, She, you know, placed like right at the top at um, what is essentially the biggest race for age groupers um, in Ironman. We just kind of go right up to when like everything was happy in 2018. The What I look at is you take an, like an outstanding athlete who has incredible potential um, and you train them a hundred percent specifically for the day, week in, wake out, year in, year out for three years. And they get really good at just that one speed and that one task. She was specifically trained to do well at that race. But unfortunately, what she came to the table with was probably like massive explosiveness, a lot of running speed, potentially some run um, endurance, but it would be more stochastic, right? Because in soccer, I guess the games are probably, I don't know that much about soccer, but I'm pretty sure it's a 90 minute game. So you're running around for 90 minutes, but you generally don't run in a straight line. You don't run consistently. They just applied a lot of specificity to somebody who had a really strong engine. And, And probably what happened after that is that she just lost capacity. Probably her biggest weakness overall for a race that's four and a half hours long uh, was just base endurance. Uh, So she probably needed to just do a whole lot of zone two and let all of her natural speed from soccer just speak for itself. And and that might have been the best way to come into the sport. So without going any further uh, in in this question about the the rest of the stuff and talking about her Ronstads and stuff like that, what do you think? I actually really like that you focused in on her soccer career before the triathlon clear, career, that you, you had that context. And I think you've made some really good points. And, and listening to you, 
this is something I hadn't thought about when I, I read the question, but it's kind of the picture I'm getting now, which is her first coach got this athlete who, as you said, was phenomenally gifted, had already been a professional athlete, I think saw the potential here and pushed her too far too quick. You know, this is mm-hmm. a, I've had this conversation with athletes before of, you know, we can get you to a really good result in a year or two, but it's kind of a burnout routine. I mm-hmm. think it's a responsibility of a coach to say, even though we can get somebody there quickly, we're going to take our time and build them successfully so that they can have a, a long career. And that's exactly what wasn't done with this athlete. They, they went for the quick results, mm-hmm. uh, got some great results, but um, I think they should have taken longer. As you said, transitioned her to a sport that even if she had great fitness, um, requires different assets and built her up to mm-hmm. it and looked to get the results later on. Yeah. And so, and then I think if we, if we keep going and, and um, you know, she, she's switched coaches a couple of times and, and we all know like with four weeks or something like that, all you can really do is not screw an athlete up. You really can't do anything right. um, for an athlete at that point. I think she was just losing a lot of faith in coaching. So the Ronstad eight week block, uh, that, that program is, is when you, you either do five, I think it's like threshold, like five by five minutes or something like that. You do five days in a row of that work. And then you do it one day a week after for, I don't know. I thought it was four weeks at a time. Like maybe you do, I I don't know the exact, I I know what it means. It means like you're doing a block of like really hard work and then you just maintain once a week and they compared it against doing two threshold type workouts per week. And I don't remember the the specifics of it, but um, that program that she's doing or that she did with her bike is actually a strategy that I use quite frequently with athletes of mine. Um, Certainly I don't do five by five minutes every day for five days in a row. Um, But I think for triathletes um, it is beneficial to have blocks of focus uh, because, um, and I'm going to talk about this a little further down. You don't need to train everything and every quality in every sport every week. And so I think that's a mistake that a lot of coaches make. And I think that's a mistake a lot of athletes make when they coach themselves is they think, okay, well, let's take a runner. For instance, runners do a tempo run. They do some kind of threshold or speed run, and then they do a long run. And then the rest of it is just like, you know, fluff around that. And so then they might come to triathlon and they're like, well, I have to do my threshold run and I have to do my, you know, intervals. And then I have to do my long run. And you know, if you fit those three days in and then, and then you're, you come to it and your coach says, well, you have to do, you know, your VO2 max for the bike and you have to do your strength intervals and you have to do a long ride. So now you've got in a week, you've got six different interval sessions that you're trying to cram into seven days. And then on top of that, of course, you have to do turnover for swimming and you have to do a long swim. You got to swim open water. Then you got to do, I don't know, you know, hundreds off five seconds rest. I don't, I don't know. I'm just making this stuff up because it's all ridiculous, but it meant you need a week. That's like, you know, a month long. <laughs> so, so the, the point being that your body doesn't know the difference between, um, what sport you're doing to a point. Um, I, I like, I'm well aware that, you know, you need to have some sport specificity in your training, but in terms of getting all those energy systems in, um, within a, like a reasonable amount of time for your body to adapt. You don't have to do all of these intervals. 
if we go back to the Ronstead, the nice thing about it is that you um, try to spread out this stuff a little further, but then for some athletes, they respond really well to like bigger blocks of training. And it's a lot safer to pack together four or five days of riding than it is to pack together five days of running just because of the impact stress of running. So I do like the idea of once a month and, and generally I, like I personally do it once every three or four weeks, definitely once a month. And then with a lot of athletes that I coach that um, don't have as much time to like pack together this many days, if they have a long weekend, for instance, and they have like a day off work, very often we'll turn that into like a three-day camp where they ride like somewhere between three and six hours a day for three days in a row and they really do a block. And so she talks about a, an eight-week block and it doesn't surprise me that she would um, have like a little bump in terms of her, her capacity there for after that because she did get really sports-specific for a period of time. I think it was more the fact that she just rode her bike more that did that. I don't know if it's necessarily like the protocol that she used. And then if we go to her saying that, you know, she focused on her running and she hasn't really like experienced any improvement. She just didn't say what is the quality of her running that isn't good. Can she run her 5k capacity if she's not biking before, but then she runs crappy off the bike or is it just her running at all times, not what she expected based on what she could run before she was a triathlete. Uh, so, so those are questions that I would have to ask of her. But the thing about running is that you have to run fast to run well, and you have to be fresh enough to run fast. And so you have to make room for that in order to be fast. And, and no matter what distance of triathlon you do, you have to make room for some fast running to, you know, improve your mechanics and elasticity. And so I think for her, she's just trying to do a lot of stuff. And I don't know that she's creating enough room for her to fit the right stuff in at the right time. And, and it's just difficult to figure out how she's judging herself on, on not performing. What this reminds me of actually is when we had you on the show before talking about triathlon, where you said you have to think of triathlon as a, a single sport, not three separate sports that are back to back. And you even just brought that up with your, your questions is, is she a slow runner or is she a slow runner after doing a 40K time trial on the bike? And is she killing herself in that 40K, not leaving some room for the, the running? Certainly, the impression I got from the coach that, that was cooking her, there is a bit of culture in triathlon of overtraining and under-recovery that comes from this whole idea of, well, you have to train all three sports equally. So you're just doing interval work all the time. You're doing multiple workouts a day, and there's no room for rest or recovery. I remember talking with a triathlete where I told her, you need a recovery day. And she's like, so I swim? Like, no, you sit on the couch. <laughs> so I run. And I was like, no, you take a day off. Like you could just hear the fear <laughs> from the idea of having a day of not training. It sounds like the coach that she she initially worked with had that mentality of you got to train all three sports really hard all the time and not seeing how the whole thing fits together and how to keep it in balance. She wants to do half Ironman stuff and the amount of time that she's putting into it is close to what some professional athletes would put in. And, and my question is, what else does she do outside of this, right? So she's training 18 hours a week and she's feeling much better at 18 versus 20. 
but how much work does she do? How, how strenuous is her work? Those are questions that I would have for her. And I think that for triathletes, they, they can carry like a lot of hours. Triathletes can, can successfully do more hours even than cyclists can do. So to a certain extent, yeah, like they do train a lot. I, I, I think that I was training somewhere around 30 hours a week, a lot. And it's because like some of it's non-weight bearing altogether. So, so swimming can be quite restorative uh, for athletes. And if you build up to it, then yeah, it really is a rest day to just go for an easy run. But you have to build up to that with a significant amount of really low intensity mileage. And I think that um, what just isn't translating sometimes when athletes come into the sport is how low intensity that mileage actually has to be. My guess is that she, when she ran easy in when she was playing soccer, it wasn't very slow. Like or she, or maybe they didn't do mileage work because I like like I'm I'm truly ignorant as to how to train as a, an elite soccer player, but I'm just trying to imagine like they'd have to do some conditioning because the the game's quite long. Um, but the but the the objective is to get to the ball first. So it's acceleration most of the time. So, um, but then it's like repeat acceleration. So it's like almost like repeat straight sprint training would be the bread and butter of what they did. Um, so, so for her, it's, it's just making sure that does, does she actually have a base of capacity to, to put into this? And then um, what is she calling hard? She's saying one hard ish and one hard ish, like run and bike. What does hard ish mean? Right. That, who knows is that zone three so that's her hard now so she's just going easy and and sort of hard which that's bad you know just go easy <laughs> and then go hard right. <laughs> don't don't bother with the hard ish like go for it a uh, question that comes to my mind and maybe trevor was somewhat alluding to this and i know you're both biased because you're both coaches but it seems like fitting all of the pieces together of the triathlon training puzzle is complicated and you can overdo it quickly. So, you know, again, you're biased, but do you see more mistakes being made when when people try to train themselves at triathlon versus just cycling or just running or just swimming? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you would recommend that they get a coach to help them figure it all out? All right. So if I talk about self-coaching from my own experience, uh, when I came into Xterra, there, there really weren't coaches for Xterra. So I had to figure out how to coach myself. Even when I switched over to Ironman, by the time I was what, moving into the Ironman discipline, I tried getting a coach a couple of times. And even though I was committed to and, and had a coach, like I, I just didn't have good results, you know? So it, like even finding a coach that's going to work for you um, sometimes is, is complicated and knowing what's, what's going to work for you, but making sure that you find somebody that you have good communication with, I think is everything because more than anything, you're just trying to learn what works for you. And I think that had I had a coach that I could discuss the intricacies of the, you know, the full distance Ironman at 
length and, and talk about what my experience is with trying to cover that distance with somebody who was really knowledgeable, even just having that like frank conversation about discussing you as a project is um, it's, it, it's so beneficial, right? I, I think that most of what I see is athletes don't see themselves in the right light like you you just need some perspective and that that i think is the hardest part of of uh self-coaching is you have to be able to distance yourself from yourself to be able to see yourself and then you have to believe in yourself because you know you have to believe in yourself as an athlete being able to accomplish these goals but you also have to believe in yourself as a coach that could actually help you to achieve those goals which is a double ask and then I think what you can 100% ex expect is that you are going to question your coaching ideas, like the workouts that you give yourself regularly in the middle of them. <laughs> so in my experience, that happens a lot. So you have to have like a lot of belief in what you're doing because uh, I think I think Trevor will will agree with this, is that whether you think you're gonna be successful in a program or you think you're not, you're right. So not only do you have to believe in your program, you know, you kind of have to believe in yourself. And that sometimes that's difficult to do to like back yourself, both as a coach and an athlete. The thing that I said to her is, is she's had a really bad experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she overtrained. She definitely went into non-functional overreach. It's not a great experience to go through. She's clearly very scared to go back into that experience and I've seen this with athletes where it gets into your head. There is a psychological component where you look for the signs. And if you're looking for the signs, generally you're going to find them because, as we said before, if you want to race and train at a high level, fatigue's part of the game. But now you're uncertain, is this normal training fatigue mm -hmm. or is this me going back into that experience I had before? And then I've seen this with athletes, and it seems like this is a bit of what she's been doing you keep changing coaches, you keep changing plans because you're, you're scared of going back into that, that non-functional overreach. And my feedback to her was at some point you need to find a coach that you trust enough to say, I'm going to trust the plan. I'm going to move ahead mm -hmm. with the plan. And when I start having those fears and feeling those burning legs and wondering if I'm overdoing it, I'm going to trust the coach and move forward. And, and, and she even said, I feel better after two and a half weeks. And I think both you and I know that, I mean, for, from a significant endurance effort, you know, maybe you're going to start seeing the benefits of that three weeks later. Um, you can start to feel better cord, like in terms of coordination and a little bit of turnover in, in a short period of time, like maybe 10 days or so, but two and a half weeks isn't really enough time for any training to really marinate. And, um, and any kind of performance is going to be, like weeks and months in the making. So she's, she really, I, I think that the, the main health metrics that she's um, monitoring in terms of her mood and her sleep and her period and energy levels, all those are good. And I'm, I'm not sure whether her resting heart rate stuff, like, like there's a lot of research on HRV where it's not, it's not the, the be all end all. And if we go back to like, our last um, question, and we were talking about just how do you feel? 
Um, and, and I'll quote Shona Halson again, because obviously I'm fangirling on her all the time. Um, they were talking about how they were trying to like assign a, a metric to recoveredness and um, the best way to measure recoveredness was a daily questionnaire about like readiness to train. And so if we go back to our other guy, it was just kind of like, if I feel like it, I do it. And if I don't feel like it, I, I don't. To a certain extent, um, I have three questions that I ask athletes to ask themselves before they embark on training because some they're on different time zones. They can't like text me like that. What is three in the morning for me to ask me if they should train? Like, like, how do you feel health wise? Like if you have like bad symptoms above, above the neck, don't train. If they're, if you have bad symptoms, they're below the neck, um, you know, probably modify the day and, and slow it down how's your body how is your sleep you know if you have like multiple days in a row of bad sleep you probably need to start modifying something or figuring out why you can't sleep and then how do you feel from an energy perspective like in terms of like adapting to training if you if you, there's more than a day or two in the row in a row where you have to like either modify a session or you're not up for whatever that session is then probably the overall loading is incorrect so your programming has to change and generally, if you kind of look through those three questions, you can you can decide on on whether or not you're ready to train without a number. You know, you're just like do a scan of your body and decide. And I think if if I look at most of what's going on with her, it, it looks okay. And she might just be so worried about her own prescriptions for coaching that she's maybe trying to find something that's not there. And and if she just like relaxes and enjoys the process a little bit, maybe some of that stuff might resolve. There's actually been studies that have shown that the, the best way to evaluate uh, an athlete's recovery is these more qualitative metrics. And some good ones, there, there's a couple tests out there that you can do, which can really help. And some of them only take you a minute. So one of the most popular is the POMS. There's DALDA, which is the daily analysis of life demands of athletes. Another good one is RESTQ-S. So those yeah. are all three good tests. You can find them online where you quickly fill them out and, and they'll give you a pretty good assessment of where you're at. Yeah, that's essentially the doll does my like that's I just came up with three questions because honestly, like that's as many as I think um, people will answer at 5 a.m. when they've got kids going to school and whatever, like just run through the list. Am I ready or not? And off you go. Right. And I mean. But that you're absolutely right, Trevor, like those those three tests are, have been proven to be the best way to manage like elite programs. Too often we we try to like n not like over overstep our own natural intuition and um, perceived, you know, health. And and sometimes you just got to check in with yourself and go like, is today the day or not? And some days, you know, you just let it go. I, like my favorite gif is the frozen chick with her like doing her little dance you know and she's like she's just like the let it go song and 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 when somebody says you know i just couldn't get the session in today i was feeling like crap i just send over frozen let it go moving on <laughs> who cares right one session lost is better than you know a month of injury or you know maladaptation Question leads to a, a thousand different uh, points that we could make, and we could we could talk endlessly about that type of of uh, athlete, that type of situation. But um, sh let's move on to the to the next question. This one comes from Mackenzie O'Donnell. He's up in Edmonton. He writes, "I'm a runner and a cyclist, but I'm not a triathlete. 
I tend to run more in the winter months and gradually transition more to cycling as the weather gets nicer, but I never stop running. So my questions are, is the running helping or hurting my cycling and vice versa? And also, if it helps, how do I most effectively incorporate the two sports into one training plan? Mel, we'll start with you. You must have experience in this. I, I like running and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pile in hiking with the running because I think that for cyclists who haven't run, like I think hiking is a good gateway to running activity. Especially in the in the winter months, uh, I I pr- I prescribe one of the endurance days to be a hiking day or a cross country skiing or some kind of cross training where athletes are more on their feet. And I think it's because you know cycling is non weight bearing and there are some bone density issues. Uh, All of my athletes do some form of strength training as well. Uh, But I just, I think that there's, there, there's benefits beyond the weight room in, you know, being on your feet on the ground. So I always ask athletes to get off the bike a little bit in the winter. If he's asking how to incorporate running, um, I do for, for this very reason, I think that there's a lot of benefit to like the, the bone density issues. And I think just the ability to, um, stretch your hip flexors out and, and straighten up a little bit because postural issue, issues for cyclists are, are a real thing. Uh, and, you know, between cycling and sitting at a desk, you can have real back issues because you are constantly in a state of shortened hip flexors. And that state of shortened hip flexors is, um, makes it very difficult to run, right? You actually have to have like a more neutral pelvis to run safely and effectively and land correctly. So, that's the biggest problem that most uh, cyclists have when they go and try and run is that they haven't like a, their pelvis is shifted forward. Like they're sitting in a chair still when they go to try and run. And that doesn't allow you to load your ankles correctly. Uh, it really leads to landing in front of your body. And, and that sends a lot of bad force in bad directions um, and can expose you to injury. How does one diagnose such an issue? Is that something that, you know, you vi- film yourself running and send could send to somebody and say, Hey, am I striking the right way or poorly? Yes. Or how does, how does somebody diagnose that? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like you, uh, you can, uh, a coach can, can spot that just run by the camera and a coach can see it from a mile away. It's, you can probably see it while you're running or you just have video evidence, which means you can um, slow it down and, and break down each part of your run stride and, and see but generally like the the posture that i'm describing um is pretty easy to see um a, a lot of athletes think that they need to lean because everyone talks about forward lean in running um but what i see most of the time and and most of the time i see you know cyclists turn triathletes or older triathletes that have been told to lean when they run and what happens is they're actually just bending at the waist they're not leaning at all. And, and that bend is creating this anterior tilt in their pelvis. And, um, and that prevents them from landing correctly with good posture. So yeah, it's, it's super common. It's probably the most common thing. And, and, and it, it does increase the odds that you're going to end up having some run related type injury. So, so, so posture is a big part of it. Um, and, and developing that strength, like to, you know, you stand up straight with good posture with your ears, your shoulders, your hips, and your ankles kind of stacked on one another. 
Um, and then the other is just having the, the, um, the proper mechanics in your feet and ankles because cycling, you don't really have to lock your ankle the, the way you do and it's not even locking you have, you do lock it to like land and then you unlock it to to roll off your foot um, but all of that sort of landing mechanics is a learned thing um, that i think athletes need to work on uh, and that's why plyometrics are so beneficial if you do them correctly um, because if you think about it uh running is like single-legged plyometrics from one leg to the other for like 30 minutes straight uh, and anybody that's done a plyo knows that it's pretty high intensity. Uh, so what I usually say for cyclists is as long as you build up to this with like some hiking where you work on that posture and just landing, and then you go from hiking into some walk runs. And then from those walk runs, you extend the, the amount of running to walking that you do, then generally you're going to build up to uh, some healthy running, which, you know, is a nice change from being on your bike. So as long as you build up to it correctly, like, most of the time what happens is a, a cyclist with this ginormous engine is like, I'm going to go for a run. And then they go run for an hour and they like blow their Achilles out because they're not landing correctly. Their Achilles is totally not prepared for an hour straight of plyometrics and, uh, and then they get hurt and then it's no fun, right? Because it hurts. Trevor, could you chime in here a bit about the, uh, the physiology here? Uh, yeah. Does run if you, if, yeah just how do the two relate in terms of physiology and what benefits can you get from one and the other? So I went, I spent a while looking into this a year or two ago, and there, there's two big studies on this, what's called the crossover effect. So one is, goes all the way back to 1994 by a, a, a Dr. Tanaka. The other one, here's a name that you'd recognize is Dr. Izzerin, who's really been credited with the whole block periodization. He wrote a, a whole uh, review on this. And basically what they're saying is there is a, a fair amount of transfer. Uh, running transfers really well to cycling and also to swimming. Cycling transfers not quite as well, but still well to the other two sports. Swimming doesn't transfer hardly at all to the other two. But they also, so these are older studies, so they talked about central versus peripheral, which has kind of been thrown out. But the basic idea here is what transfers is that aerobic engine that you build. So if you're going out and doing base miles running, base miles cycling, that endurance that you build, that, that aerobic engine is going to transfer to all the, the other sports very well. Uh, what doesn't transfer is exactly what Melanie's talking about, which is that neuromuscular side. And that's what you have to be careful of. And, and Mel, to give you a story that you can laugh at, uh, because I experienced this firsthand, my ex-girlfriend was a triathlete. She convinced me to do the Fort Collins triathlon with her a few years back. You know, I, I had good endurance. I had good fitness. I, In the nine months before this triathlon, I went for a two-mile run about two weeks before the triathlon just oh, to prepare. Ready. You so were perfectly Sure, prepared. Sure, I was completely ready. <laughs> He's all tuned up. <laughs> this is just a sprint triathlon. The guy who started out on the run right in front of me, he was a good runner and it just motivated me. So I chased him. And so it was 5k. I was going sub six minute miles, which for oh, a guy that hasn't yeah. done any running was pretty good. Mm -hmm. And you I, were tearing muscles with every movement. So <laughs> I get across the finish line. I'm like, Oh, that was great. I didn't know my fitness was so good. And, and so my girlfriend was in, in the way behind me. So I sat down on the sidewalk just past the finish line to wait for her. 
sat there for about 10, 15 minutes. She crosses the finish line. I go to stand up to go and congratulate her, and I couldn't stand up. It's like you were um, a marble statue. You had just been David sitting there thinking. "Hmm, My legs completely locked up. She comes over to me, and she's like, why did you come over? And I'm like, I can't. Yeah. Yeah, that's the eccentric loading that you get from like the impact of running. And and that's what cyclists don't experience. Like the direction of force is the same. Like if you're like pushing down on your pedals or you're pushing down into the ground as a as a runner, the two um the two are really similar. they 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 did this like interesting study in this mentorship I'm doing at Altus where they they talked about like the length of your rectus femoris. It's like quite a bit shorter when you're cycling than when you're running. So the peak force on the rectus femoris is like different in those two. And so um, th- that was an interesting question that I asked them on like, what do you do about that with a with a triathlete who has to be able to, you know, ex- exert peak force at both lengths, right? And like, what do you do about the training for that? Um, but the, the main difference is that eccentric loading, which um, will create like significant doms and um and requires uh, a certain amount of elasticity and and adaptation to be able to absorb it um and what you experience trevor is that um that non-neural engagement with the ground that comes from frequent running that allows your your feet and your achilles tendon and and, and all that like musculature and tendons in your lower legs to act like a spring and so if you don't run frequently it's not good at absorbing that kinetic energy and like like rebounding off the ground instead you kind of hit the ground and stay on it which is why you won't have the same sort of um feeling of bounciness or or like you know economy that's exactly what running economy is it's this like elasticity in the in the tendons that comes from you know a lot of like appropriate training so uh, so that's what cyclists generally like underestimate is like how uh, beneficial it is to 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 have that and and how they have to be really careful because your capacity for for pushing a force vertically into the ground as a cyclist is really high. Um, a great story to illustrate this is like Rob Britton, I think, won this trail race in Victoria and and anybody who's been to Victoria, BC, like we've got some really like elite caliber runners here like really fast people and obviously rob britton is a is a rock star um but he won this 8k right so because he's just a like he's just a lungs he's lungs and like really strong legs and and of course that 8k is trails so every time you're running uphill it becomes more and more like the cycling motion there's like less impact like it it kind of becomes more like you're cycling the the steeper the hill um, so this race does include significant amounts of steep hills, but you still had to get down the hill, right? Which requires turnover and leg speed, which would, you know, go more into a runner's favor. So I think that's just a good example in, in how, you know, your, your cycling engine can make you a good runner if you um, prime your springs correctly to, to do it um, efficiently. So it's basically building that efficiency just takes some time because uh, ligaments and tendons just take longer to adapt to, to training. I'm like Mackenzie in that I, I do like to run and I try to fit it in. And I, I've found that um, I guess at a minimum, I'll do a, a run a week or maybe I'll uh, kick it out to every 10 days at a minimum. Some it depends on the, the, the time of year, of course. And that for me 
keeps the doms away. It, mm. Is that is that a good rule of thumb if somebody's looking to keep doms away and get some of this is to do it at a minimum once every week or 10 days? If they go beyond that, it, it might creep back each time they go for a run? Well, I think it's working for you, right? If So you're saying you're not getting doms with that interval. Um, the 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 wisdom with running is that you're kind of better to run a little bit less a little more often um, because that neural engagement um, requires uh, just maintenance. So I think that if you ran more frequently, you might find you felt more bouncy when you run. But um, if what you're doing right now is is feeling good and you're not getting injured, it's working. Right. So um, and you don't need to run any faster. Are you running trails and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm asking more for the general public. Is there a rule of thumb of what works generally speaking? So there has been research on DOMS and the most protective thing against DOMS from eccentric load is DOMS, meaning you go through it, mm -hmm. your body repairs from it. And that protects you from future future experiences of DOMS. So this is the good old, you go to the gym, you do some plyometrics, you can't walk for a couple of weeks. But if you keep going very quickly, you don't have that same experience. And right. the protective effect, if you get the full protection, <laughs> so you do a couple sessions of this, sure. can last up to six months, believe it or not. Hmm. How long do you run for, Chris? Uh, it, like I said, it depends. If I'm If I'm just doing it, to stave off doms on a weekly basis, I might do four or five miles a week. That's it. When in the summer, when I get up into the high, high mountains to do some trail runs, it's, uh, you know, more like 15, 20 miles at a time. Wow. Wow. I used to be a runner though. So my body knows how to do it. I'll just put mm -hmm. it that way. It mm -hmm. seems to know how yeah. to do it. And it doesn't take me a ton to get back to a point where I can do that at a clip. Yeah, and I think that that the, you're probably a, an efficient runner. You probably have pretty good form. And are you doing strength training as well? No, never. No. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. Well, then you're just a freak. I think that we oh, he is like, a freak. Haven't we come to this conclusion on this show <laughs> like a million times that Chris is a freak? Yeah, I would say like your ex experience may vary to Chris's in terms of running 20 miles off of one run a week. I, I don't think that most cyclists should choose to run 20 miles when they've been running one run a week. But I think one run a week is enough. Like I know that when I was racing mountain bikes, Gunrita Dalla would run one day a week all the time. She ran somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes and she swam two days a week as cross training throughout the World Cup season. Uh, and she felt like every time she had to get off her bike, you know, in some sections, you'd have to run a little bit that um, that just helped her for that amount of her training and just having some variety just kept it fresh for her. And here's somebody who raced at like she won a World Cup last year, like right before the pandemic at like 45 years old. So here's somebody who knows what they're doing. She incorporated running into her entire mountain bike elite career. So so certainly it can be done at a really high level and. And, and like you're finding, Chris, like one day a week is kind of enough to like make it fun and a beneficial part of training. Well, uh, always a pleasure, Mel. Thank you for joining oh, us you, today. Um, and we hope that you get to race soon. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a difficult question saying, hey, are you a pro athlete when you haven't raised a professional race since 2019? But yeah, I, I think it's it's been a, a really 
interesting journey, like just seeing what's happening in the professional field with this layoff. And also just, I mean, you guys must also be finding that um, it's a real mixed bag as to who came out of the the no racing block um, like better, having having worked on different stuff for a year. And as more and more races come back, it's going to be exciting to see like what what pandemic training has has meant for the the fields overall so it's been exciting as a coach if, if not challenging there's so many interesting questions including what happens when you take somebody who's been racing Zwift for a year and a half and you put them back in a real peloton where you can't ride through people <laughs> that was another episode of fast talk subscribe to fast talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts be sure to leave us a rating and a review the thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>